You're listening to the Ministry Grow Show, brought to you by Reliant Creative, the creative agency for gospel-centered ministries. Find out more at ReliantCreative.org. Welcome to the Welcome back to the Ministry Growth Show. Today on the show, I'm going to be talking with Harry Brown. He is the president of New Generations. Harry, thanks for being on the show. Zach, it's good to be with you. Yeah, I'm excited to have you guys on. Um, Can you tell us a little bit about New Generations and and maybe share what you're currently most excited about, what God is is doing through the organization? Sure. Uh, New Generation is all about disciple-making movements. The idea of a disciple-making movement is a chain reaction of disciples making disciples that results in a cascade of churches planting churches. Now, we define a movement as at least 100 new churches that have multiplied to four generations of churches planting churches. So our tagline for New Generation is unleashing movements. And the idea of unleashing something is that there are things that are being restrained. We believe the people of God and the power of God are being restrained, and we're trying to help release that uh, to create these movements. As far as things that God is doing these days, um, the scope of New Generations is 52 countries, 643 different people groups, and another 64 either urban centers or what we would call population segments a segment being something like street kids, prisoners, prostitutes, gang members, slum dwellers, something like that. Mm-hmm. So uh, in, in terms of what God is doing, the last 15 years, from March 2005 through the end of December 19, there's 73,729 new churches. That encompasses 1.7 million new followers of Jesus. And here's the key. There's 127 movements Remember the definition, at least 100 churches to at least four generations, and six of those movements are now at more than 30 generations of churches planting churches. Wow, that's incredible. It's truly the story of God's glory and the, uh, the power of uh, your natural network. That's incredible. And, and what is your role within the organization? I serve as the president. Okay, cool. Um, now I know a little bit about DMM or disciple making movements. Can you talk about disciple making movements, um, what they are, how you guys are implementing them and, um, and using them throughout your ministry work? Let me give you a frame of reference. Um, I often tell people that from my perspective, the only way to complete the great commission. And when I say only way, I mean, you know, make it red and blink. The only way to complete the Great Commission is when ordinary people are multiplying disciples in their natural networks. So with that belief as a frame of reference, if you want to unpack what a disciple-making movement is, it has an engine that we call Discovery Bible Study that gives it the power. So what is a Discovery Bible Study? The idea is that you're getting spiritually lost people who are, uh, I mean, spiritually interested lost people into the Word of God. And first people say, why would lost people want to get in the Word of God? Well, the the Scripture is very clear. 
If the father is not drawing them, they're not coming. But if you turn that coin over, when the father is drawing them, they are spiritually interested and willing to, to uh, discover God in his will, in his word. So we get these lost people into these discovery Bible study groups, and we ask them four basic questions. What does it say? What does it mean? What are you going to do? And that's the fulcrum. It's the obedience question. Mm-hmm. And then who can you tell? So what does it say? What does it mean? What are you going to do? And who can you tell? That's the essence of a discovery Bible study that brings people from wherever they're at uh, before faith to faith, then through the obedience of baptism, then to understanding what a fellowship of Christ followers or a church is, what it means in terms of each other, what it means in terms of your neighbor, and what it means to uh, replicate through your natural network. And and within that, where does the the person of peace um, come into play and some of the other elements of, of this structure that you guys have outlined on your website? Yeah, so uh, the person of peace is an integral part. And the, the idea here is if you had a target community or any target segment, whatever, the first thing you want to do is make sure you have your prayer base in place. Then after that, you're going to be training local leaders because the whole process is about the folks that are sons of the soil, not by the outside folks coming in and taking over. Then you want to be finding the person of peace. What is a person of peace? Well, you look in Matthew and Luke and you hear these references where Jesus is sending out the 70 two by two. And he says, go and find the person of peace. And if you do find him, stay with him. If you don't, shake the dust off. So uh, I, I define the person of peace with two dominant spiritual characteristics. One is they're spiritually interested, like I said before, because the father is drawing them. The second is they have community influence. So the person of peace is really the, the individual that God has placed there to unlock the door to the community so you don't have to kick it down. Through the person of peace, you get them to identify other spiritually interested lost people and invite them to a discovery Bible study. So the outside person that you've trained is acting like a coach or a facilitator, not as the leader. In this process, the coach is giving them compass headings in scripture. Here's where you need to look first to find out where you need to go first. And as I mentioned before, that the first step on the journey is you're a sinner who needs a savior. So mm-hmm. the coach is giving you scriptures or if illiterate story sets that will lead you to the place of salvation, then baptism and so on. So the person of peace is sort of the gateway to the community. Have, has DMM or disciple making movements always been a part of new generations and city team, or is, is this something that you've a structure or strategy that you've implemented later on in ministry? What does that look like over the course of how long you guys have been in existence? Yeah, uh, I was a part of city team for 44 years, and that time in that ministry had four different seasons. The fourth season was all about church planning, and that that was about 25 years. The first 15 years, I'm sorry, the first 10 years of that time was mostly R&D, you know, trying to figure out what kind of value we had. The last 15 years, uh, starting in March 2005, was where we were introduced to the idea of what was called at that point CPM, church planting movements, by a guy named David Watson. David was somebody who um, had some unique characteristics. As part of thinking about new strategies, he developed uh, some pioneer work in the north of India 
that was under the banner of CPM. There was lots of others doing CPM at the time, most notably the um, IMB, the missions arm of the Southern Baptist. Mm-hmm. And when David uh, came to City Team, he, he had two characteristics that were very important. One, a clearly articulated strategy, and two, the experience to back it up. So at that point, we uh, started on our CPM journey that became eventually DMM, Disciple Making Movements. And so it's been something we've been um, practicing since March 2005. Very cool. Now, this is obviously something that you guys have seen um, a ton of success in, and the Lord is obviously working in and through your organization through DMM and, and what you guys are doing. Do you find that it is um, a strategy that's not very well known within like your donor base and, and the, like the American side of the church? Oh, I think that's very true. Um, if you went from Pentecost forward, you're going to find lots of places in church history where you see big things happening, and many of them could be characterized as movements. But as you come into the modern mission age, which is in round numbers 200 years or so, the idea of movements is just starting to reemerge. Now you have people like Donald McGavern who spoke about certain principles and other uh, think tank guys like that who sort of pointed the way. But it's only in the last uh, 25 years or so that the idea of CPM, church planning movements, and then after that DMM, disciple-making movements, has been taking off. So I would say, generally speaking, in missions and in uh, churches, the idea of movements by themselves is sort of a new idea, and how they work is very new and different. So it usually takes quite a while to help somebody change a paradigm so they can really understand. You know how it is. Uh, People are all the same. They want to connect whatever it is you're telling them to something that's familiar to them. Mm -hmm. And when it's not familiar, you have two problems. One is it takes you many links in the chain until they can finally get it. And two is they tend to keep defaulting to something they are familiar with and wanting it to be like that. So, yeah, it is a bit of an uphill uh, challenge to be able to explain what is a disciple-making movement and how does it work. And, and I think culturally there's got to be a level of um, the the American church seems to tend towards or trend towards making converts rather than making disciples, right? And so if that's our pursuit and we're looking for numbers rather than making disciples, um, that's a big shift in mindset. Yeah, there's actually several things packed in that, Zach. I would tell people that most everybody in the Western church and the ones they've influenced came to faith through a gospel of salvation, not a gospel of the kingdom. Mm -hmm. What's the difference? Well, in the gospel of salvation, you understand you are a sinner. Jesus is a savior. And if you accept him as a savior, you have eternal life with him. 100% truth, nothing not to like, but it's also not the whole story. A gospel of the kingdom is calling you to obey the king in everything. And part of that obedience is the command to all to make disciples and teach them to obey everything. And of course, if they do that, the people they teach will repeat. And so they're also making disciples. Now the flywheel starts to turn. So it really is um, the difference between being a believer in Jesus 
and a follower of Jesus. Mm. Now, you've been with the organization for uh, quite a long time. What has been maybe some of the hardest lessons that you've learned as you've led this organization or been in leadership positions within uh, City Team and now New Generation? Yeah, so let me give you the answer in, in two different ways. One is kind of the hardest thing, and the other one is the biggest thing. How's that? That's perfect. But the hardest thing uh, is to find the balance between you don't want to leave too soon, but you don't want to stay too long. Now, you think about that. Leaving too soon, you may have created a spark of momentum. You may have baby Christians or a baby church. You, you leave too soon, then all of a sudden there's high risk of it uh, either being extinguished or the enemy um, crushing it or it you know going off the cliff in terms of the wrong direction and so forth. But if you stay too long, you're really messing with the DNA of what you're trying to achieve. Now, there's a famous old phrase that says, start like you want to finish. But where do you want to finish in these things? You think down the road, 10 generations out, 20, 50 generations. Well, what you're looking for is local indigenous leaders who are helping launch a process that gets lost people into the word of God, calls them to distill what does it actually mean, and then to declare what are you going to actually do, and then make sure that they're replicating the process with other folks in their natural network. So if you take too long and too strong of a role in that, you're messing up the DNA that you want to have be a chain reaction that leads uh, honestly into the future past the sideline where you're not going to see it anymore. Let me uh, just use something that's very poignant these days, the idea of viral. We all are struggling with the corona problem, and mm -hmm. it's the dark side of viral. Everybody gave it to somebody else. But if you turn that equation to the positive side, we want the gospel to go viral. And the idea of viral is that when it leaves you, it doesn't stay like you. It cross-connects into things that are different. There's an awful lot of ministries that are set up as a one-size-fits-all and expect that lost people are going to be attracted to it. When they're so diverse, they're really not interested in the, the cultural trappings that don't fit who they are. But when things go viral, it means that it's going to get into all of the different parts of very, very diverse societies by touching every segment. So you don't want to stay too long because you're, you're starting to mess around with that aspect of DNA. So that's the hard lesson. Don't leave too soon. Don't stay too long. Hmm. And I'll tell you the biggest lesson. Uh, everybody who's been in ministry can uh, quote John 15 that says, apart from me, you can do nothing. Well, that obviously points to power and prayer, but even though we all believe it, what does it look like in its practical expression? So the biggest lesson that I've learned is to make it the absolute cornerstone of everything you do and put the time and the energy and the money into making prayer your true foundation. Now, what that looks like for us is right now, by God's grace, over time, we've built a donor base, not a donor base, sorry, we built a prayer base that has over 50,000 dedicated intercessors. Wow. Have very stringent regiments of prayer and fasting that they practice every day. It's their calling. It's not something they do. It's who they are. So the biggest lesson I've learned is make prayer your foundation. Hmm, that's awesome. How do you guys go about building that foundation with, with that prayer 
uh, that 50,000 people of uh, that prayer base, as you call it. Yeah, and uh, let, let me just give you a flavor. They do it differently in different regions around the world. Let me give you a flavor for what they do in uh, Anglophone West Africa. This is the regimen of prayer and fasting they agree to. They're all going to pray and fast on Wednesday. They're going to pray and fast the first three days of the month. They're going to pray and fast the first three days of the year. So that month is double. Then they're going to take ownership of a slice of a 24-7 clock. You're going to pray from 2 to 3 in the morning. I pray from 3 to 4, so forth and so on. Then they agree to a half night of prayer per month. Then they agree to a full night of prayer per month. Then they agree to extended fasts throughout the year that range up to 21 days. And that's the minimum. So when we're talking about dedicated intercessors, we're not talking about the casual fly by God bless them all kind of people. We're talking to the folks who've given their life to this. How do you get to those kinds of commitments and that those kinds of numbers? We put a lot of time and money and leadership into recruiting, training, and mobilizing intercessors because you know pretty much you can judge what you really value by what you have on your calendar and what you take out of your wallet in terms right. of in a fund. Man, that is an incredible uh, schedule. It, it is beyond me. I can tell you that I, I join the intercessors for prayer and fasting on uh, Wednesdays. I can't claim uh, to be doing all those other things. That's amazing. That's really cool. Um, now to transition a little bit, is there a, a ministry sector or a niche that you guys focus in and apply DMM to like relief or healthcare or rescue or how does that all work? Like, um, yeah. It, um, let, let me give you a sort of a mantra uh, to set the stage. And that would be, we're committed to the idea of no segment left behind. And the reason for that is if you think about the lost, now there's at least 5 billion lost people. There could be as many as 6 billion, but it really doesn't matter. It's a big number. Mm-hmm. So if you're looking at 5 to 6 billion lost people, what are their characteristics that they have in common? Well, first is, they're very diverse. There is no one size fits all to the lost people. The second is that they're very dispersed. They're all over the place. They're everywhere in every segment of every society. And the third is they're very difficult because if it was easy, it'd already be done. So when we're looking at where do we want to see movement happen, we actually want to see movements happen in all segments of all societies everywhere. Now, we don't think we have to do it all. Uh, We certainly want to help other people see it and do it. And so far, right now today, we have um, north of 700 indigenous partners that did not have reproductive results, and now they're getting reproductive results, and we actively train them to train somebody else. So you keep the ripple effect going. So we can't claim that uh, we're in every segment of every society but we can say from a vision standpoint, that's what we want to see. So it doesn't matter. Uh, right now, we, we can tell you we're involved with rich, poor, rural, urban, literate, illiterate, old, young, places of war, places of peace, places of freedom, places of persecution, and ranges from uh, old to young, you know, all of the, the different spectrums. There's things that are happening in all of those because we're really committed to the idea that no segment should be left behind. 
Mm, that's really good. Now, what is that the balance then within that between the work and or the word and deed? Um, maybe this comes up or pops up in that that portion of the um, structure on your on your site that says enter the community uh, portion. So, what does that look like to balance word and deed in in the DMM process? Yeah, it, it's a great question because there tends to be a polarization or a binary, meaning it's either or. And from my perspective, it's an inherent both and. Mm-hmm. And when Jesus said, yeah, there's two commandments that of equal standing, love God and love your neighbor. And he said, everything collapses back to that. The whole law is encompassed in that idea. Love God, love your neighbor. But when Jesus said that, he took away any distinction between the social and the spiritual love for God, love for your neighbor are two parts of the same heart. You leave part of that out. You've broken the heart. So from our perspective, we help hurting people as part of being disciples, as well as making disciples. When we enter a community, one of the ways that we get in is through some sort of very practical meet a need, or sometimes I say scratch an itch. The, the issue is that most often you are not welcome and what you have to offer is not wanted. So how are you going to be able to re- create these relationships that allow you to find the person of peace, that allow you to launch uh, discovery Bible studies, et cetera? Well, it's by creating relationships. And how do you create relationships? You do it by scratching itches. So we're involved in a very wide spectrum of help for hurting people. It looks like clean water. It looks like education. It looks like agriculture. It looks like medical. It looks like dental. It looks like, you know, computer training and on and on. Mm -hmm. So we're very involved in all that, but it's never in isolation. It's, you know, part of the same heart that also leads us to initiate through relationship the reproductive, obedient, disciple-making process. So given your your niche or whatever need that you're serving is going to depend on that the given need within the community that you're you're attempting to enter. Yeah, that's exactly right. You know, and and there is no cookie for cutter for that either. And in, in some community, the kids may have no school, in another place they may not have clean water, in another place they don't have access to a doctor or a dentist, that kind of stuff. You know, that's in um, the third world context where infrastructure is bad and mm-hmm. our resources are, are scarce. Taken out to the developed world because we work in large urban centers as well. Uh, North America, London, Berlin, other places like that. So what are the issues that people are dealing with there? Well, things like loneliness, things like addiction, things like broken marriages, things like uh, that are real to the human soul and you can minister to that don't have to look like clean water and and feeding hungry people. Right. Now say for example, the need is clean water. Are then you guys partnering with other organizations that do that? Or do you just become a water organization for that given community? Yeah, it depends on the need. Uh, But on the low end, we do a lot of the stuff ourselves. On the high end, you need sophisticated partners who have special 
specially trained people. They have special equipment. They're meeting a special need. They have special mm-hmm. donors that support it. So we, we like the idea of partnering. I'll give you two quick examples. Uh, one was water, like you mentioned, and we partnered with a group called Life Water. They do a fantastic job at what they call WASH, Water Access, Sanitation, and Health. Well, they're in the communities doing the wash process with people, and they're doing it with real quality over the long term, and we embed or infuse the DMM process right along with it. And in the communities where we've done that, in partnership with LifeWater, the church planning has gone very well because it's a hand-in-glove thing. Different illustrations. Um, It's been a while, but we had a, a partnership with a group called Cure. Cure specializes in cleft palates and club feet on little kids. They trained the church planners how to recognize what can be fixed in terms of club feet on kids. We help get the kids uh, fixed, and the parents were very interested in what's the why behind it, and it led to very uh, significant church planting results. So those are two examples of partnership where somebody who has a specialty joins with us so that we can use what I'll call the relational equity of meeting human need as a launching pad for building uh, discovery Bible studies and disciple-making movements. That's great. That's really beautiful. I love to hear stories of organizations partnering like that. Very good. Um, How is DMM different than what other ministries may be doing to make disciples? You touched on it a little bit, but... um, So, you know, the first thing that I want to say in terms of what might be different is just that. Different doesn't mean better. You know, God is the composer of his symphony, and every instrument within that symphony is essential, and they all have a part to play. And and God uh, arranges the instruments and decides which music and all the rest. So I can tell you the kind of things that we do. I'm not trying to say it's better than anybody else's version. Right, right. So I'm going to give you four key things that are hallmarks of what we do that are um, what you would call on the critical path. The first is personal discovery. That means that you as a lost person have your nose in the word of God to try to figure out what he is saying to you. And it's really rooted in that belief that God will speak to you. The scripture is full of things that say God will instruct you. So you go to his word, you ask his spirit, and you expect to hear. So personal discovery is one of those hallmarks. And there's nothing about personal discovery that is anti-teaching. Teaching is a gift of the Holy Spirit. It's given to the church. It absolutely has its application. So it's not in uh, any way antithetical to the idea of discovery. But starting with like you want to finish, you want anybody no matter where they're at in their spiritual journey, to have a DNA of discovery, meaning they personally will be in the word of God. They personally will be listening to God and not always just borrowing from somebody who is an eloquent teacher. So that's the first thing, personal discovery. The second thing is immediate obedience. You know, um, James says it very well. If you don't know what you do, I mean, if you don't do what you know, sorry, if you don't do what you know, you act on it then it it doesn't have any force or effect. Uh, So the idea of immediate obedience is just a a big emphasis that knowledge by itself is valuable because how can you act if you don't know? But if knowledge stands alone without obedience, it doesn't produce any kind of impact. 
So we focus on immediate obedience, not just, yeah, I'm going to get around to it, but yeah, I'm going to do it right now. Then the next uh, is consistent replication. The idea that whatever God is giving you, you need to pass on. Part of your own personal maturing is in the process of giving it away. It's also what helps it root in your own heart. Then the, the last one I'll offer is ongoing coaching. You know, I said before, don't leave too soon. Don't stay too long. The, the idea of the balance is you're coaching somebody on their journey. So it is their journey and they have to take ownership of it, but they're not abandoned. So those are four hallmarks that um, weave through everything we do. That's great. Yeah, we get asked quite often by ministries um, or, or there's a, a difficulty or a concern in, in figuring out ways, especially if it's an organization that is um, needs-focused or, or um, providing some type of service, uh, how, to, how can they work discipleship into their programs that may be, may be the focus? Maybe they're not like a crew that's discipleship first, um, but they want that and, and have that as a core element to what they do. The, the service that they provide is so that they can share the love of Jesus. Um, but there's always that, that struggle or a lot of times that struggle of how do we work discipleship into what we're doing? Uh, so those are, those are some good, helpful um, principles that I think a lot of ministries can learn from. Um, what have you guys done to educate your audience on DMM? You talked about there's, there's a, a, maybe a gap in, in the Western church specifically knowing about DMM, what it is, how it's applied, uh, the effectiveness that it can have. How do you guys go about educating that audience on DMM and, and show how God is using it to change lives around the world. Yeah. So my headline response to the question, what do you do is not nearly enough. <laughs> I do have some things to offer, but boy, I, I wish it was many multiples. Um, I'm sitting here at my desk and I have uh, three different books that have been authored by guys that are on our team. The, the first one is called Miraculous Movements. It's written by uh, a teammate of mine named Jerry Trousdale. Here's the the, um, subheading, how hundreds of thousands of Muslims are falling in love with Jesus. So this book is a collection of, I think, 33 or 35 stories of God working in miraculous power that affected Muslims who uh, joined the Discovery Bible Study and then the disciple-making movement process. And it includes in Chapter 13 a a how-to. So that's a good example of trying to help people on the journey. Uh, Jerry co-authored a second book with a guy named Glenn Sunshine. It's called The Kingdom Unleashed. And the idea of this book is, why do we see so many movements and such momentum in what's called the global south, I mean, typically the underdeveloped part of the world, versus the global north where you have all the money and the sophistication and all that sort of thing? Why is the real action happening in the global south and not the global north? So that's the second book. Then a a third book comes from another teammate of ours. It's called Spent Matches. And here's the subtitle on this one, Igniting the Signal Fire for the Spiritually Dissatisfied. So this guy, the author is Roy Moran, and he is a pastor at uh, Shoal Creek Church in Kansas City. And he was on this DMM journey, and he wanted to answer the question, how does our church pursue disciple-making movements without blowing up what we have? 
So his book is uh, an attempt to answer that question for the, the folks who are in churches who say, man, we, we have to get on with this um, obedience-based reproductive discipleship. What does it look like? So those are at least three expressions of things that we're trying to do to be helpful to folks on the journey. That's great. And and as you guys have educated your audience and, and your donor base, obviously having that donor base that is investing in the organization, they're, they're bought into the idea, but there's elements of DMM that kind of go counter to how we, at least for my, in my experience are different than what I grew up in uh, with, with regards to the church. And this idea that you can be almost put into leadership positions and start practicing DMM, maybe even before you've said yes to Jesus. So what does that what does that kind of look like as you guys um, educate your audiences? Do you find that there's a lot of pushback within that? Uh, well, there is two things. One is there's um, inquiry that's really seeking uh, because they don't understand it, and then sometimes there is pushback. So on the uh, honest seeking, people are saying, "Wow, uh, what is the idea of discipling someone to conversion?" I thought discipleship happened after conversion. Right, right. No, that's a, that's a bit of a stereotypical kind of a uh, paradigm. Uh, who gets to say when it starts? You know, the mm-hmm. root of discipleship, a disciple means learner. Uh, do you know anybody? that has stopped learning in their spiritual journey? If no. they have, there's something wrong. What does that mean? That means it's progressive. Mm-hmm. When, when um, the crowds followed Jesus and the 12 followed Jesus, you have lots of up and downs of these bursts of, this must be the guy, and then the valleys of, man, I don't get this. It doesn't make any sense. <laughs> and so, you know, what he's doing over time is, is connecting the dots until the picture emerges. That, that process is more typical uh, than the, in a point of time, everything becomes clear and you make that once for all kind of decision. Now, people often say, wow, well, how can you get them to obey uh, before, you know, they're a, a believer or a follower? Well, number one, it's not about you getting them to do anything. It's about the father's drawing them. The spirit is speaking to them. You're helping them find the crossroads on a given issue. You take the right fork of following God or you take the left fork of following your own will. What are you going to do? You know, there's a lot of people that take the left fork. I'm not interested in obeying. Well, what happens with those who don't choose to obey is they go away. And why would they go away? Because they're not of your tribe. The ones that stay are the ones that want to learn. They want to grow. In effect, they want to get better together. And the process of encouraging obedience is not accountability in the sense we normally use it. It's empowerment. Accountability has sort of the innuendo of a police action. I'll check and make sure you did. Empowerment says, what do I have to do to help you get to where you want to be? And I'll trust you to help me get where I want to be just the same. It's a, it's a dynamic that's rooted in the idea that things progress in the typical case as opposed to being point action where everything happens all at once. Yeah. Well, and obviously there's some incredible things that the Lord is doing through this. And so, I mean, there's you have so many stories. I'm, I'm halfway through that book, one of the books that you referenced. And um, it's just really cool to see what God is doing through this. And um, so it's it's – 
it's been fun to learn this process and and uh, I'm excited to see what the Lord continues to do through new generations and other organizations that use this model. Um, what are what are you guys doing to communicate the stories of how God is is moving through you and DMM and um, specifically uh, to your ministry donors and your supporters? Yeah, you know the website is one avenue. We keep stories uh, there. There's a whole section you know given to stories, so that's one way. Another way is that we just recently have started a social media track, and that that's going to be giving out um, kind of the soundbite level things that lead you if you want to know more than you know how you can get more kind of things. Uh, we've been writing a lot of articles. Uh, one of the magazines, Missions Frontiers, has been getting quite a bit of content from us. In fact, they did a major issue not that long ago on uh, the pygmies in Central Africa. It's a beautiful story. I'll just capsulize it for you. The pygmies at the bottom of the totem pole, and everybody kicks them around because they're forest dwellers and they're short stature and uh, they're easy targets. And by God's grace, uh, the DMM process took root about 14 years ago and multiplied from effectively zero to where now there's well over a million pygmies that are followers of Jesus just through this natural network processing and following a discovery Bible study format. So Mission Frontiers uh, had us write up articles like that. So that's another avenue. Um, Opportunities to speak, um, opportunities to uh, write articles, uh, blogs, you know, that sort of thing. But as I said before, it's not nearly enough. Well, that that sounds like some some great stuff. I'll I'll definitely be following along with what you guys are doing. Uh, I think that's about all the time we have, Harry. Can I pray for New Generation? Yes, by all means. And if anybody's looking for stories, you can always go to the website. That's just newgenerations.org. Perfect. Father, I just lift up uh, New Generations and Harry. I pray that you would lead and guide him as he leads this organization. I pray that you would continue to do amazing works through uh, New Generations and and Harry and his team and this disciple-making movements and process, Father. Um, it's just cool to see uh, organizations that are implementing the ways that you made disciples and, and seeing how effective it is. And so um, I pray that you would just continue to move and, and flex through this organization and that people would come to know you and um, that you would be glorified. And I thank you for Harry and his team's willingness to say yes to your call, Father. Uh, we love you. Thank you for your invitation and allowing us to be a part of what you're doing. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Thank you, Zach. Harry, I appreciate your time. Thank you so much for being on the show. All right. Well, uh, you're most welcome, and uh, we'll look forward to connecting again. Sounds good. Have a good rest of your day. All right. Bless you. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Ministry Grow Show. If you enjoyed it, we'd appreciate it if you rate and or review us on the iTunes store. And make sure you subscribe so you never miss an episode. If you have a story to share with other ministry directors and pastors, or know someone who would be an incredible guest on the Ministry Grow Show, let us know. We love connecting with ministry executives and sharing their wisdom and insight with our audience. Just send us an email at info at reliantcreative.org. And lastly, if you need help telling your ministry story, we would love to share how we can help in that process. Check out Reliant Creative at reliantcreative.org. See you next time.